the more enthusiastic the client is about the product that we're making, the more compelled I feel and the happier I feel, the more fulfilled I feel. Even though, you know, no editor wants multiple revisions, right? But for some reason, I feel so much more fulfilled and happier when the client is like, ooh, what if we did this? Or like, hey, I think that this would be a good idea. If the client is like so involved, it just makes me feel like what I'm making is important. Even if what I'm making ends up getting like five views, I don't care. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is Valentina V. Valentina is host of 4-Minute Film School for the Aperture YouTube channel. She's an Adobe Master Trainer, a freelance DP, editor, and director here in Los Angeles, California. She's had a wild ride working with such clients as The Rock to to doing YouTube videos for high-end YouTubers as well as obviously working for Aperture. She has a lot of knowledge in all things filmmaking and in our conversation we talk about how she was able to do that as well as some interesting techniques and things that she's learned along the way. She's also got a moment course on interview lighting setups coming out soon so be on the lookout for that. And before we get to our conversation, I want to remind you guys to head over to polarpro.com and see some of the incredible filters and accessories that we have for sale. All right, without any further ado, let's listen in to my conversation with Valentina V. All right, so here we are again with my friend Valentina V. We had some technical difficulties last time we talked, but here we are. We're making it happen. Thank you so much for coming back and for doing this, uh, Valentina. No problem. I feel like as filmmakers, we're pretty used to technical difficulties and that kind of carries on into like the rest of our lives when my friends yep. cancel plans or something happens and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm like, listen, that is just my life. Absolutely. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so uh, for people who don't know, Valentina is a uh, host of the Aperture 4-Minute Film School. She's an Adobe Master Trainer, as well as a freelance DP, editor, and director. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about all these different things. But first, tell me about yourself, where you come from, your upbringings, like how you got started in the uh, the video world. The short story of it is I'm originally from Kazakhstan, which is a country in Asia. It was part of the USSR. So I speak Russian. That was my first language. I came to the US when I was seven. I immediately started getting really interested in video production, just like right from the jump. And then I studied uh, design media arts at UCLA, which is a major that's more focused on design, but I concentrated in video. I also got a minor in film. And then I started working in the industry. I worked at Paramount Pictures. I worked in indie features. And then I sort of uh, transitioned into working with YouTubers. And now I am a full-time freelancer. I guess I have my own LLC, but I still freelance. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I make all sorts of things. I make shows, commercials, music videos, um, travel the world. At least last year I did. This year it's been a little slow, <laughs> yes, understandably. Of course, of course. So, and I also teach. I teach for Aperture and mm -hmm. I teach for Adobe. That's amazing. I mean, you kind of do everything. It's really quite incredible. Um, some would call you an influencer. Yeah, it, there's always, <laughs> that word is always interesting to me because if you take it from the face value, right, do you influence people? I would uh -huh. say, yeah, I do. That's like what a teacher does, right? But I think the the meaning of influencer has sort of 
morphed into more of like an Instagrammy YouTuber kind of person. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm that, but um, I did a I did a poll on my on uh-huh. my Instagram and on my Twitter, and it seems like most people think I am an influencer, and I think that is everything I need to know, right? That means I am yeah. an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we were able to clear that up. It's something that has been a fun little uh, joke that we've had between each other now ever since our previous interview because we brought it up and I was like, yeah, you're an influencer. And then you did the poll. And sure enough, most people do think that. But there's, you know, it, you can interpret it however you want. It's just a word. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, it it really doesn't. I think it's just... Uh... It comes down to, does an influencer need to know that they're an influencer in order to be an influencer? And I I guess I didn't know that until I literally asked. Yeah. It's like when when we were using the Phantom drones, like in the early days, people would say, oh, is that a drone? And I'd be like, no, it's a multi-rotor UAV. (laughs) Right, right. Did you know I have a pilot's license for this? (laughs) You have to kind of give up on it. Like the word selfie as well. Like it was such a cringy word and then it just became part of our language. So uh, maybe influencers like that too. It feels cringy to say it, but you know, it is what it is. It's totally fine. Yeah, as long as I don't put influencer first, right? As long as I'm like, (laughs) I'm a filmmaker. If I ever go, I'm an influencer to introduce myself, um, (laughs) I don't know who that person is. That's true. Um, So tell me about how you got started in uh, just your DP directorial, um, you know, life. You just mentioned, you know, briefly in a a nutshell, but what kind of drew you to, to that and what were some of your first jobs in the in the industry that kind of allowed you to get into the this world? It was very slow, I think. I started out, uh, I just needed to get to LA somehow because I knew that that's where all the action was. So I applied to UCLA for design media arts mm-hmm. because it seemed like an easier, more acceptable way to go than film school specifically. And I got to LA and that was really when everything popped off like that was my excuse to come to LA and that's where I met all of the people who gave me my first jobs somebody who Mm. I went to school with at UCLA recommended me to be an editor for a famous YouTuber at the time uh, Michelle Fawn and I uh, shout out to Samara she's awesome she recommended me and so I was like yeah let's let's do it let's be this editor for this YouTuber and then slowly over time I introduced the fact that I could shoot mm-hmm. I look back at those videos I'm still really proud of them maybe I didn't you know I wasn't like the most knowledgeable about lighting at the time or about cameras but I, I learned on the fly and I was really thankful for the opportunity that's awesome. And would you recommend college now to people in 2020 as a way to, because it sounds like that's really what allowed you to to meet these people and, and, you know, to grow your career. Is that the reason why people should consider film school still is the connections? I think the connections are the biggest draw of film school, especially because you are in the trenches with people. You are with people who are just like you and you're creating a project together and you're going through that learning process together if you are just thrown onto a set and you've never been on a professional set before and everyone there's a professional except for you it's a little bit harder Mm -hmm. to you know get your footing 
that being said, like film school is definitely not for everyone. It wasn't for me. I studied design. I did film on the side. And it also, you know, some people go to graduate school for film. And that also depends on what are you going to do? I feel like if you're a producer and you go to graduate school, that that's going to be like highly important to you. Because as a producer, there are so many little things that you have to be aware of, like SAG contracts, like uh, equipment arrangements, like agreements, insurance, like there's so much that a producer has to think about. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are um, a director, a lot of directors don't go to film school, you know, a lot of actors become directors, a lot of, um, it's just such a such a varied skill set that yeah. they they can't teach it to you. Yeah, and it seems that at least in my experience, it has never been like when somebody's hiring you for a job, they're not like, "Hey, can I see your diploma?" It's always, "Hey, let not me see once. the you know, I saw your reel or I heard you worked with somebody." I mean, is that true for you too? Yeah, no one's ever asked me where I went to school or what I studied, and honestly with the real thing i have a real but no one's ever been like oh i saw your real it was always it's always based off of personal connections all mm -hmm. of my work is based off of personal connections and a lot of times it i it's not even something that they've seen me do yeah. it's just that i've met them and they know me yeah and they liked hanging out with you exactly <laughs> there's a lot to be yeah. said with like you know how are you on set i think a lot of people underestimate that like you could be super skilled as a shooter uh, and you know producer but if you're kind of a, a jerk you know nobody's going to want to work with you <laughs> yeah i feel like if you are a jerk you better be the absolute best like person at that <laughs> job that everyone dis disregards your attitude because you are some sort of like auteur or savant or <laughs> And let's face it, like most of us are not. Most of us are just like working, you know, doing this as a job. And what you have to help you stand out is actually your attitude and Absolutely. your communication. So tell me about the journey to Aperture. Uh, that's how I first got to know you, obviously, working here at uh, Indie Mogul and with Aperture. Um, tell me about that and you know, your job there and now your role as the four minute film school host and occasional host of, of other things. What's that job? And, you know, tell me about yeah, the story. I mean, again, it's like, I feel like it's all about connections. Ted and I have been friends many years before he wasn't at Aperture. Um, mm -hmm. Ted, as many people know, is the president of Aperture. So when they were starting out to make their own gear, because before I believe Aperture was a manufacturer for other companies. Yeah. So when they started making their own gear, Ted brought me in. This was before any of the COB lights. This was before the... 120D or even the 120T. This is back when they just had the Amaran, the small little panels. He brought me in to write blogs for the Aperture website, just uh -huh. about things like what's in my camera bag. I wrote a blog about that. And uh, eventually he the, had the 120T, which was the first ever like single source light that Aperture had. And I remember I was shooting something for Mashable at the time. And he asked if I wanted to use the Aperture light for Mashable. And I was like, yeah, sure. So he came on set and watched me DP this shoot for Mashable um, using their lights. And they were uh, very excited like that I was using the Aperture lights. And <laughs> 
then I had my whole job with Michelle Fon. After that job ended, uh, Ted was like, hey, do you want a job? I'm like, yeah. So I started working with Aperture as a full-time employee as their, like, you know, media, like shooting everything, basically. Shooting mm-hmm. four-minute film school, shooting the commercials, um, running the social media accounts. Oh, okay. So you're behind the camera when Ted was doing all those early videos. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That nice. was me. Yeah. And then, uh, then I just started getting a lot of offers for freelance stuff. And if anyone knows anything about me, it's that I love to travel. It's my favorite, favorite thing. And it just, I was getting a lot of travel offers and I was turning them down because I had a full-time job. So I remember I told Ted that I wanted to leave and it was right before NAB, which is like the big conference that I was literally (laughs) planning uh, all of our stuff at NAB. So he got a little panicked. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, I will definitely like uh, see you through NAB. I will train my replacement. Everything will be fine. So that's 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 that. And um, (laughs) it was all good. And then a few years later, like four years later, uh, Ted came back to me and he's like, hey, listen, uh, we need a new host for Four Minute Film School. There's really nobody who knows these products as well as you do, who's been with the Aperture fam as long as you have, who can also like be an entertaining kind of like personality type person. So yeah. uh, that's how I started hosting Four Minute Film School. But it's always all about, for me, it's always all about just being like a good role model for women and being a Mm. present filmmaker that women can take a look at and see that, Oh, there's this, there's this girl who's, who's out there and who's doing stuff rather than, Oh, Hey, look at me. I'm like killing it or whatever. (laughs) I think it's, it's really great. It's a great role for you because you're a working DP, you're a working director and you bring that experience and that expertise to it. It's not just, you know, you're the host of this YouTube show and it's this meta thing where you're talking about doing stuff and maybe you make a fake scene in the YouTube video, like you're actually living it and and you can bring that experience into it. How do you kind of bring your experience into the Aperture videos? I mean, that's really interesting to think about because a lot of people think I am just the host. So for example, a few NABs back, I was, uh, I was conducting some interviews on the Aperture stage and the people who I was interviewing, they didn't know that I was a DP and a director. So when I let them know that mid interview, I was like, oh yeah, well I shot a documentary about this and this and like, oh yeah, I did, I was here. And they were like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were just an on-camera personality. I'm like, no, I, I bring a lot of the setups that I do into the episodes. That's awesome. So. For example, we just did an episode about um, lighting continuity, mm-hmm. and we did it in a diner, and I actually used a lot of techniques that I shot a short film in a diner at the beginning of this year, and I used a lot of techniques there because it was it was vi- a pretty similar situation, pretty similar framing, similar lighting. Uh, we just did one on lighting uh, a sunglasses commercial, which was all about how to light reflections or reflective surfaces. And I used a few techniques there that I just did for a music video a few months back. So I maybe you can consider that I'm not that creative. I'm just using techniques that I've used on my actual work <laughs> and making tutorials about them and like, you know, recreating those sets or those setups. But you do learn a lot. When you're a DP, it's not like even people who go to school for cinematography, it's not like they're, they learn everything that there is to know and then they're good. Every single set yeah. teaches you something different. So Absolutely. it's fun and it's a good way to freshen up my ideas for 
four minute film school. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know, we should do a better job of presenting you as a DP. I don't know, on the channel, if people aren't aware. But I th- I just think it's generally when people, it, it's the way social media works. Mm-hmm. When you post your work on your social media, like your actual, like a video you made for a client, you know, it might get a hundred likes or it gets like a little bit of engagement versus when you post a selfie or a video of yourself, then people are like, well, like here yeah. she is, here's her face. I remember <laughs> a few years ago, I did this one thing for Nat Geo where I was both the director and I was in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for years I had been posting, oh, I directed this show, I directed this video, look at this that I directed, like constantly talking about me directing things. And then I posted one video where I was on camera to my Facebook. And since then, I still get people that are like, oh, so how's uh, how's hosting for National Geographic going? <laughs> nice. Yeah. As if that's my entire job and not just like a one-off thing I did sure. four years ago. Cool. There's something to learn there, right? The power of uh, being on camera and the power of social media. And uh, again, it comes back to the poll that you did and how people see you as a as an influencer um, just by taking pictures of yourself or putting yourself on camera. That alone kind of makes people think that you're a certain thing when you might you might not actually be. Um, yeah, and it's it's a, it's a little annoying, but once you understand that that's just how the world works, I think it. Yeah. You know you. It comforts you a little bit. But yeah, it is a little bit annoying that (laughs) people are like, oh, you're this host. I'm like, no, I'm not really. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, literally, like Instagram can burn down tomorrow and I don't care. So (laughs) that's the other that's the good thing about it. Right. Because I feel like people who make their entire living off of social media, Mm -hmm. they are very dependent on the algorithm or their partnerships or all of that because I get 100% of my revenue and my money from the actual work I do. Mm -hmm. If I deleted all of my accounts tomorrow, it would make no difference to me. Exactly. And that's quite a difference from a lot of people we interview on this show. I just interviewed Sydney Dyongson prior to you that went live this week. And, um, you know, a lot of other influencers that we've interviewed. And uh, yeah, just pick your poison, really, because both are different and they both have strengths and weaknesses and whatever but um, how do you use social media i'm interested like do you have a strategy <laughs> or i, I oh, know yeah, you're very yeah. active on twitter as well as uh i think you're more active on twitter than instagram if yeah I'm, even though yeah. instagram is it's dumb it's like i barely post anything and the engagement is 20 times better than on twitter um so i i put no effort into instagram and it performs better than twitter which i put more effort into but um, <laughs> I think social media, like those things, I definitely treat it similar to you, honestly, where I'm not really thinking too much about algorithm and stuff. I'm just kind of being active, just sharing my thoughts and feelings. And it's kind of a personal window into my mind, my silly, ridiculous mind. And it's also a great place to connect with other um, YouTubers, creators, filmmakers, just you know, I like to reach out to people that I'm fans of and tell them I love their stuff. And, you know, um, obviously for this show, it's a great tool for me to reach out to people and get them on the podcast. So I use it in that way. Um, that's true. You know, that's the only reason that I think being verified is like a good um, thing is that you, once you're verified, your 
messages like if you cold message someone that you admire that goes right to the top of their notifications or right to the top of whatever they get and that is such a useful tool (laughs) totally yeah it's really useful for obviously if you're hosting a podcast or whatever but also just for work you know who knows i mean have you used that um to get jobs at all well no i'm not verified on anything but i have it's it's interesting it is really interesting because i have noticed in the last couple of months since i've started tiktok some people have what they call what's it called cross-pollinated yeah Uh that's what they call it (laughs) cross-pollinated into instagram and people treat you differently based on the number of followers you have Mm -hmm. and i'm not any different than i was when i had like 200 followers i'm still posting the same stuff yeah but now that i have a little bit more followers people are like oh what she has to say must be important and that is wild and also that helps because i had this um this whole year i've had this tutorial series that i've done with adobe and they wanted me to bring in guests for every episode and like 95 percent of my guests were people i'm already friends with i'm like personal (laughs) friends with that i can just text and be like hey you want to be on my show but then the other five percent are people who i don't know and guess what the second that they get an email they're going to go to my Instagram to see who I am. That's yeah. just become the world's address book, right? Yeah. And it certainly helps to have more followers than less when you're asking <laughs> someone to be on a podcast or a show or an interview or something like that. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> uh, some of the things I've learned is uh, like portrait photos rather than landscape photos perform better. Uh, they're called thumb stoppers. You want to have people scroll and then it fill their whole screen. Um you know, hashtags, tagging people, those types of things. I'm not much into all that. Obviously, YouTube is a whole different ball game, and I'm obsessed with the YouTube algorithm and studying and learning that. So that's really oh, where really. All... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where all my focus is right now is is on YouTube and trying to. You know, we're just trying to make Indie Mogul the biggest filmmaking channel on YouTube. So. <laughs> well, I know even the video that we did together, we were talking about how you could see where engagement drops and yeah. if there's like slow sections and you can edit those sections out or you can <laughs> yeah. maybe use that as a, like a um, like a guiding star for your next video. So exactly. for your next video, you could be like, let's not talk about this kind of stuff because it doesn't get as much engagement <laughs> as talking about this kind of stuff. There's a story about um, a friend of mine who worked with another YouTuber and he noticed that every time he was like an engineer or something and every time he said the word technically he saw like a drop off and he he said it like a couple of times in his videos it was just kind of almost like a tick that he had uh, that he would say that same word over and over and he noticed like every time he said it there was drop off so he just stopped saying the word and no more drop offs it was kind of like a hilarious thing that he discovered but because of the analytics he's able to figure out like wait a minute there's a pattern here every video when i say this word people leave uh so it it's, triggered people yeah it triggered people it's like oh my gosh this guy says technically way too many times <laughs> but it can also i feel like it can also trap you because if the thing that's popular in your videos is the thing that is the least interesting to you as a creator yeah like for example a lot of people love unboxings and reviews and maybe you're a creator that does that but you also do a bunch of other things that you care about but if the unboxings get so much more views than everything else you kind of it could trap you it could create 
cause burnout. Yes, I have many friends that are stuck in in those types of things, and uh, I myself have even felt that over the last three years. But um, it's the cool thing is is that there's no rules on YouTube. There's no client telling you how to do it, so you can change it and do what you want and find things that you actually enjoy that do pop off. It just might take some time and some experimentation, but uh, that's the beauty of it. And that's why I love it. And that's why I have no desire to pursue Hollywood. terrifying for me. That's terrifying for me. That's like <laughs> the opposite of, of what I would want because for me, this is so good. Um, this is a great I, interview <laughs> for me. I need a client, right? I need a client. And the more enthusiastic the client is about the product that we're making, mm-hmm. the more compelled I feel and the happier I feel, the more fulfilled yeah. I feel because like I've had clients that have been pretty hands off, you know, I send them the first draft and they're like, cool. And every time I send them a new video, they're like, cool. And they just upload it and whatever. And for some reason, even (laughs) though, even though, you know, no editor wants multiple revisions, right? All the editor, like every editor wants to just get the thing out and have the client be happy with it. But for some reason, I feel so much more fulfilled and happier when the client is like, Ooh, what if we did this? Or like, hey, yeah. I think that this would be a good. If the client is like so involved, yeah. it just makes me feel like what I'm making is important, even if what I'm making ends up getting like five views. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> so that's so. It's cool. interesting. Yeah, we're so polar opposite because I hate that so much. I couldn't wait to get out of client work. So uh, that's amazing. You take all the client work. I'll take all the YouTube videos. Perfect. <laughs> it's a perfect, uh, perfect scenario. Um, No, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about people. We're all so different and we all have different things that we enjoy and there's nothing wrong with one or the other. It's just, you know, what makes us happy. That's awesome. And that's what's so cool about uh, this time is how democratized this industry is now to where you and I, you know, can just decide we want to make videos for a living and work our butts off, but, you know, actually do it. It's such an amazing time with the internet. It's wild and I would have never thought that I mean, back when I was choosing where to go to college, this mm-hmm. YouTube was not a viable career path, let alone like helping YouTubers. You know, yeah. people only saw YouTubers as those who are in front of the camera as one person, one man bands kind of thing, one person bands. Yeah. So nobody really thought that there would be this industry of producers and directors and DPs that help others make their youtube content so it was either film school and you made films and tv shows or whatever or it was nothing right? <laughs> that was the only path and now it's like you're right with the de- democratization of not only platforms and how many there are mm-hmm. but also with how cheap cameras are getting and how available editing education is yeah uh, everyone can be a filmmaker and everyone who wants to be a filmmaker can be a filmmaker and there is a client for you or there mm. is an avenue for you to be able to make a living and make money and that is amazing <laughs> it's so amazing it's demazing as i would say um <laughs> so <laughs> so what are some of the big mistakes that you see people make when it comes to their lighting setups this was one of the questions i asked in our original interview and i thought you had a great answer so if you could recreate that that'd be great <laughs> What's a mistake? Oh, great! People so I just have do? to remember everything I said before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of cinematography actually has to do with framing 
as well as lighting. So mm -hmm. if you frame your subject up against like a white wall or up against a wall, have a harsh light on their face so that their shadow casts a shadow on the wall, it's not going to look as good as if you just pop them off the wall, have some distance mm -hmm. between them and the wall so that the lighting doesn't touch the wall or the shadow is like too far down to, to register in the scene there's also a lot that has to be said for production design and this isn't even like maybe you come to like a warehouse and there's no production designer however the angle at which you shoot your subject is going to be instrumental in making it more interesting mm. in making it more dynamic i'm all about making things more dynamic even if you just have one light how do you make that light more dynamic if you just have one light why not make it a rim light and then take a like a foam bounce in the front and that's your key and you can just it's so much more interesting than just pointing a light at someone's face or point why would you point a light straight at someone's face why not make it a more sidey light so that their nose can have some sort of shadow on the other side there mm. could be you know there's there's so many little things that people um starting out they kind of think are like default must do's I have a light. I must point it directly in someone's face right in front of them. <laughs> it's like, you could. That's not going to be the most dynamic thing. It's going to create yeah. this flat look, but it could. Or when people purchase lighting and they only think about lighting as panel lights and they don't know the difference perhaps between panels and and hard light and how to shape hard light to make it soft and why you would want to do that over having a panel. Mm -hmm. um, that's also something to consider I use panels these days only for lighting like large areas in the background because that light is just number one it's it's uh, it has a multi-shadow effect usually so the shadows aren't very nice the shadows that those cast it, they're usually like in a crisscross pattern mm -hmm. or there's like a double shadow effect or something like that and uh, number two if you're aiming a light directly at someone's face it might it's likely that the light will create some sort of um, eye light, literally a reflection in their eyeball, right? Yeah. And with panels, a lot of them are square. So that reflection is square and it's not very organic looking. Mm -hmm. So having like a big round soft box on top of a hard light, um, it just makes it look nicer and more natural. So there's so many things I've picked up over the years yeah. being a DP. And now I, I can kind of point them out, but... I think my, my number one tip, my favorite tip is don't use a ring light. Why, why are you using a ring light? Don't buy a ring light. There's no reason. There's no reason to. Yeah, exactly. I still see them all the time for like music videos and stuff. Um, I mean, that's the thing is like if you are trying to create that look of like yeah. that alien eye circle thing, that's fine. But there's about a million other reasons why ring lights are just not the not the vibe for your everyday totally. default lighting setup my problem is always the fact that i wear glasses all the time um mm -hmm. i know my friend caleb pike um from dslr video shooter he deals with glasses and a bald head so there's like all sorts of different tricks uh with that how do you deal with reflections not even just glasses but maybe a window or something like that are you just constantly just tweaking with it trying well, to toy with it or yeah techniques to... it depends it depends on the on the on the situation yeah. but usually when you're dealing with 
any kind of reflective surface, there's two issues. Number one is seeing the source of the light in the reflection. And number two is seeing the operator or the camera <laughs> yeah, in true. the reflection. So I love pointing that out this... in like Netflix shows when, oh, they, mm-hmm. they, when they pan past a car or something. I'm like, oh, pause it. Oh, there they are. <laughs> You know, whatever. They yep, usually are exactly. easy to paint out, but um, sometimes they might make a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of the time, like in big budget movies, yeah, they're painted, they're literally painted out, rotoscoped frame by frame by a roto farm of like 300 people sitting in <laughs> India. But um, if you don't have that kind of budget, first you have to make sure that all of your lighting sources look organic or natural. So something that you can do is like make um like a window pattern on top of a softbox and so that softbox is no longer this big square that's pointing in your face it is now something that looks like a window in a reflection right ah, so it could look more organic it's a trick um yeah or you can literally film in front of an actual window and that <laughs> is an organic light source right there um you can angle your subject in a way where their key light is not reflected in their glasses you can also uh put your key light up higher so -hmm. that it's not reflected in their glasses that would obviously cause a shadow underneath their nose and chin so having some sort of soft bounce from below is also very helpful um then that soft bounce would have to be pretty large because the lower you place it the less effective it is going to be unless it's larger and of course if you place it higher to the subject you might actually see that reflection in the glasses so uh as far as hiding the operator there's a lot of things that you could do usually that's why we all wear you know set blacks we Mm -hmm. always all wear black on set because Mm -hmm. if you're wearing bright colors that'll definitely reflect it you can also cover yourself with um, duvetine or some sort of black felt or some kind of black fabric, or you as an operator can stand in front of something that is black, like a black yeah. wall, a black door, wearing all black. That'll hide you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> These are good yeah, techniques. Yeah, so it really, really does depend. <laughs> yeah, it totally yeah. depends on the, the scenario. Can you talk about CRI and what it actually means and does it actually matter? I mean, now it seems like even a cheap Amazon light is giving us 95 CRI, which just five years ago was like a big deal and a huge selling point. Um, can you talk about CRI and you know quality of light and what that actually means? Because I think a lot of people can get confused by that. I think of it in terms of the effects that it gives rather than like the definitions of it, because I can tell that a light is low quality. CRI is basically um, a measure of quality. So is TLCI. But I can tell when it's a low CRI light or a low quality light, you may not be able to tell it with your eye when you are watching a video. However, if you've ever seen maybe a jump cut in a video and all of a sudden the lighting is just slightly different, that means that that light was actually a rolling band light. So there are these rolling bands of shadow and light that are going through the image, but they are going so slowly that your eye can't register them on a regular take. But as soon as there's a jump cut, that rolling band is placed elsewhere in the image and it just looks a little bit different. And you start realizing that, oh, that light wasn't very high quality. It was a cheap LED light and it just wasn't giving, um, it just wasn't, a constant 
high quality light. You can also kind of see that if you just scrub through a video really quickly. So mm. if you put a video on fast forward like 2x, 4x speed, uh, say that this is just your A roll on your camera of you speaking directly into a camera and you can see those rolling bands, they're way more evident when you have a light that has a low CRI, a low quality LED fixture. There's also, um, if you have a low quality light, it's going to start literally flickering as soon as you start changing your uh, frames per second. So your um, shutter angle, shutter speed. Well, it it relates to shutter speed, but the reason that you would be changing your shutter speed is because you're, you're changing the number of frames per second that you're shooting. So if you're changing it to say 60 frames per second and you're changing your shutter speed to one over 120, because otherwise your video is just going to be, very choppy Mm -hmm. um so you want to have a smooth shutter angle in order to not have a choppy video but then all of a sudden the shutter speed or the shutter angle of your light or of your camera is going to come into contention with that cheap led light and it's going to start flickering and the more you the the more you increase your your uh your frame rate the more you close up your shutter speed, the more flicker and the more evident it's going to be. And yeah. then you have to use something like Flicker Free, which is a plugin from Digital Anarchy, shout out, to to get rid of it. And um, that is something that is very common in these like sets that you go to. There's a lot of sets in LA that you can just rent for an hour or two for whatever your music video or whatever and a lot of them have these lights that are already set up in the walls that you can use by default like i was just shooting a music video the other day and they had this beautiful like light tunnel which was great except they were using cheap like home depot tube lights they weren't using quasars they weren't using um high quality high cri leds and guess what like at 24p they look beautiful right they're beautiful like they they give this really cool light light tunnel effect but when you start over cranking which is another way to say when you start shooting in slow motion you change your shutter speed they start strobing like crazy oh no that's awful and then you have to and of course like this is a music video right most music videos have some sort of slow motion um and like i know i think colin tilly is a music video director he shoots everything at 60p just by default like Mm -hmm. he always wants to have the opportunity to slow something down should he need to and uh yeah so that's wild you know and so that's why you want to get high quality lights this goes all the way down to like uh to practicals in fixtures a lot of people are using like philips hue lights for example because they want to have that so bad (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Because they're not meant for film, right? They're meant for like your eye to look at when it's the light in your room. And a lot of people want the, you know, before LED lights, before the ability to change the brightness of lights on the fly using some sort of controller or an app or something like that, um, with standard film lights, you literally have to plug in a dimmer mm-hmm. into it. And you have to like have someone stand there and like work the dimmer (laughs) and 
the the issue with that is like yeah you get to use a high quality film light but um you have so much less flexibility and now with leds a lot of people want to cheat it they want to get a cheap philips hue light because oh that connects to my philips hue app i can dim it i can change it to any color i want it looks great sure but you're gonna get banding you're gonna get flicker it's not meant for film it has a poor cri rating you can get something like the Aperture B7C or the, um, I believe, uh, the Ari something. They have they also have a bulb. And those are high quality bulbs, right? Yeah. Those are not going to give you flicker and those are going to be RGB. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times too because um, you can buy high quality lights, you know, with a high CRI rating that we're just talking about very affordably now. It's It's gotten... So, um, again, democratized in the lighting and LED world. Um, and that's the rise of Aperture. And what they've been able to do is really not only take over the lower end, but now with the 600D and some of the other products that they're doing, doing some really high-end Hollywood-level uh, lighting fixtures that uh, are coming at a price point that has never been done before. So it's a real exciting time for for lighting, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And you just have to realize that you're going to get what you buy. Mm-hmm. And you may not you may not see it with your naked eye, but your camera sees differently. Yeah. So do your research, look at the ratings. <laughs> um, I would also say look at independent ratings as well because mm-hmm. a lot of these um, a lot of review companies or review blogs like Cinema 5D, News Shooter, Note Film School, they will actually, especially at conventions when these lights are rolled out, yeah. they will actually go around with their light meters, with their CRI meters. They will actually check to make sure that the manufacturers are actually saying the right measurements and that's they're cool. not just like slapping a number on. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I was so annoyed at my house how like, every practical light in my home was flickering every time I would film videos of my kids. And so I went on Amazon and I found a set of like 95 CRI, like daylight balanced, or they're actually more uh, orangey because it feels more homey uh, bulbs and they don't flicker. And I changed them all out. It was only 25 bucks for like 10 of them. And I've been so pleased because now like every time I film my kids in my home, there's no flicker anymore. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah, it drives me crazy too. And it's so wild that sometimes I see it in like high end music videos yes, and I the see time. the flicker and I'm like, why didn't like I under maybe I understand that you didn't know about your lights. Sure. <laughs> and a lot of times you rec- you also record this and a lot of times the playback isn't in slow motion. Like yeah. it just plays back at regular speed, even though you recorded it at 120 frames per second. And uh, I understand that. But once you got it into the edit and you saw that there was flicker, why? Why did you not use a plugin or something to get <laughs> people, rid of the flicker? People might not know. I mean, some people might not be aware of that. What's the plugin that you're that you use? Flicker free. I love free. it. Is yeah, it expensive? it's great. I don't think it's expensive. I don't think so. Remember, I bought one from, or I I downloaded a trial from, I think FX Factory once, and it was a very mm-hmm. expensive plugin. But um, let me see, let me see how much it is. It's it's not very expensive. I Flickr Free has a lot of, or sorry, Digital Anarchy has a lot of great plugins. Yeah. Um, 
they have that I use all the time. There's a couple that I still want to try, but they have they also make Beauty Box, mm. which is I don't know if it's the industry standard skin smoothing um, plugin, but a lot of people, it's especially the a lot of for like, video. <laughs> it's it's not it's not so much Facetune because I feel like Facetune also does the like yeah no. It, no, I know. The squishing. It's, it's nowhere near but it's, as crazy. It's like retouch. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's retouch for video, for sure. That's very cool. Um, so moving on to uh, your Adobe thing, while you look up the price of that, um, you are currently, um, you were the, the Adobe Master Trainer. You're doing some incredible tutorials. You mentioned this uh, in our interview already. Um, I think you're going to continue working with them. I don't know at what capacity, but can you talk about your relationship with Adobe and, and how that came to be? First of all, Flickr free is $150. Oh, so heck just yeah. FYI. No brainer. No brainer. Um, the Adobe thing happened fairly against my will at first. <laughs> I was at a convention and I... Uh, happened to run into someone who works at Adobe or worked at Adobe at the time and mentioned a few of the things that I was doing and she happened to have seen them like she knew my work and she didn't know that I had been the one to edit those videos but she had seen them before and she introduced me to the rest of her team and immediately they were like oh let's do something together you're a female editor uh, we don't really see a lot of females in the field being active on social media, being like advocates. Let's do something. And I said, uh, nope, I'm good. Thanks, though, because <laughs> I at the time I I didn't have an Instagram account. I didn't have a Twitter account. I wasn't really like I wasn't putting myself out there. I wasn't putting my face out there. I was just working as an editor for a YouTube channel. So for me, it wasn't very important to do that. And they asked me for a couple of years straight. They like every time I would see them at a convention, they'd <laughs> like, be like, "Hey, hey so," hey. <laughs> and I'd be like, "I'm I'm good, thanks. I'm making my money and I'm doing my work." And then eventually they hit the one sort of button that that if you press this button, like I'll do anything, which is you know you could be a really good role model for women. And yeah. that was that I couldn't like, what, what am I going to do? Say no. So I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <fine>. So <laughs> I guess. So yeah, I started, uh, I was on like a panel with them and they liked what I said at that panel. Then they asked me to do like a presentation for them at a convention. I did that. Then mm -hmm. they asked me to teach at another convention. I did that. Eventually, I think it's it's all about trust with companies like that. They want to trust that you are someone who is going, who knows how to communicate, who knows how to teach, who knows how to not get into hot water, um, who is safe. Like it's a safe person to contact for brand needs. And they saw me as that, I believe. And so they asked me to speak at Adobe Max. And that is how you become a Max master trainer. You have to speak at Adobe Max and you have to be rated by the attendees okay. as one of the top 25 instructors mm -hmm. at Adobe Max. And this is across all of Adobe, not just video. Awesome. So... I did that for four years, and in the fourth year, I was finally rated high enough that I got that distinction. But it took a long time, nice. and it took, like, that year I started working on my presentations, like, five months ahead of time, 
just to make sure that all my presentations were like perfect, that I had run through them several times, that everything was, that I gave myself the best possible shot at having the highest ratings that I could, because it's really hard to, um, to become like, not to like, not to like, whatever, like, stroke my own ego, but it's really hard to become an Adobe Max Master Trainer for video. I'm the only one. So nice. most of peop most of Adobe's viewers attend for like the Photoshop trainings and stuff. So yeah. yeah. And that's what's so cool about uh when you became the trainer is not only were you doing tutorials on video, but you were doing tutorials on things that you may not have even used before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me about that and just how that went about because it sounds like they just trusted you so much they're just like all right so you're gonna do this tomorrow and it's like oh i've actually never used that <laughs> i'm yeah i'm self-taught in editing so actually i went to their office like a couple years ago and i saw a manual like a premiere pro manual it was a really thick book and i got really scared because i didn't know a manual existed <laughs> i was like wait a second <laughs> Was I meant to have read this at some point? Because this is a lot of information. Yeah. And um, yeah, as a self-taught editor, I don't know everything. And sometimes <laughs> they just assume I do. And so they're like, oh, why don't you teach a lesson on this entire process right here? And I'm like, I've never used that process. What was the one that, you, um, that you're referring to that you told me about last time? I... Uh, there is a process called productions within Premiere Pro yeah. where you basically, instead of making a new project for every video, you create a production, which is like an overarching container into which you put projects. And the reason why you would want to do that is if you have assets that repeat across different videos, like if you have the same music across different videos, or if you have the same graphics that you're, that you're using, if you are ser serializing your videos and you don't want to have to keep pulling assets into each and every project over and over and over again in order to reuse them and bloating your projects with a bunch of extra footage um, you can use productions and you can like share footage in between projects as long as all your projects are in the same production. I didn't even know that existed. And when they asked me to teach a lesson on that, I was like, what? <laughs> I'm going to need to read some documentation and kudos to them. They're like the best company to work with in the world. Cause they're like, Oh my goodness. Like we'll set you up with, we'll set you up with our guru and he'll, he'll co-host this lesson with you and he'll teach you everything. And like, we'll get you on a call and like, you'll learn everything before the day. And so, uh, that was, that was really helpful. And I keep learning new things every single time I teach something, I keep learning a new thing. There was also something that I taught for, Adobe Max this year, it was online, mm -hmm. and last minute, one of their other instructors dropped out. And because uh, they dropped out, they had already written their entire, like, what they're going to teach, so the course outline that all the students who already signed up for the course see. I had to follow their course outline, but make my own tutorial based on their course outline. Mm -hmm. And there were a few things in their course outline that I didn't even know existed in Premiere Pro. Nice. And I had to teach them. So I had to teach myself before I taught other people. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it was a fun journey being a part of that, though. 
you learn a lot. You learn a lot. And yeah. now I'm one of those annoying people that is always like, oh, so you're just scrubbing to the next marker? Did you know you could click shift M and then that just jumps to the next <laughs> mark? Like, <I'm... laughs> Once you learn the hotkeys, oh man, it's so much fun. Once you really understand all the fun little keystrokes and stuff, because it can speed up your workflow so much. And watching a working editor uh, that knows those keystrokes, like the back of their hand, like it's it's pretty incredible it's like a musician playing the keyboard or something <laughs> okay there's also this new um plugin called excalibur or maybe it's not a new plugin but it's an updated plugin it's it's an extension for premiere pro mm -hmm. that just came out um like six hours ago and it is incredible like it is like the hotkey of all hotkeys and i'm genuinely scared of it because if i downloaded it and start using it i'll get so used to doing everything via excalibur's hotkeys i'll forget how to teach people how oh, to use yeah. the default <laughs> they'll just be like hotkeys. just download excalibur <laughs> yeah exactly what is it that's I also mean, something is it just it's, a... it's basically it basically adds you can create your own um like you can create your own sequences of events so kind of like an audition, if you've ever used audition, you can create a favorite, which is a series of actions that you want your footage to undergo. You can use Excalibur to do that. Okay. But also it's just a very eclectic plugin that mm -hmm. is kind of like the search feature on Max or the search feature, like if you've ever used the Alfred plugin on Max, mm -hmm. where you just type in the thing that you need instead of going into menus and looking for it. That's cool. So, like, you need to warp stabilize, you just press the space bar and you type warp stabilize, and it already applies it to the clip that you're on Ooh. without having to go into the effects menu, finding warp stabilize, dragging oh it onto gosh. the clip, and all that. Why doesn't Adobe just build that in? Jeez, that's a brilliant idea. I think they've been working with Adobe, but Adobe doesn't have quite enough of an API, like their API isn't as open. So some functions you can do that with some functions that you can't, but I hope that they, they do build it in because it, I just watched the trailer for it. I'm kind of salivating. Honestly, <laughs> That's this awesome. is the nerdy stuff that I, that I do is I like watch plug-in trailers. I love it. Um, if you could go back and restart your career, what would you change? If anything, I feel like I learned a lot from, everything that I've been on. Um, and I, I try to live without any kind of regrets in my life, but I do, I don't like it when clients waste time of people that I bring in for free. Yeah. That is the thing that, that, that brings me the most irk because there are a lot of projects that I do for charities mm -hmm. that, and a lot of charities are like very appreciative of it, but they have no money. Yeah. So I will call in my favors i will call in my network and i'll say you know what can you do me this favor and there's only so many favors that i can call in anyway right yeah but it's like can you do can you do me this favor it's for a charity i would really appreciate it um and then that video the charity is so appreciative of and like it it is so useful for them and that's always really that's always really um fulfilling for me but recently like just this past couple months I did this video for a charity called Get Us PPE. They provide um, personal protective equipment to doctors and nurses and hospitals. And I did it for no money. I brought in like a couple dozen of my friends to help with it all for free. 
and then they didn't even appreciate it like mm. they they posted it unlisted to their youtube channel they didn't even change the name of the video it's still my file name that's Awful. what the video is called and like there was no there was no anything about it and i'm like listen i don't care if i wasted my time right for something that didn't work out because that happens all the time for one or more reasons in hollywood in the production industry a project that you worked on gets scrapped and that's fine but i don't like wasting other people's time i don't mm. like telling people that this is going to change lives this is going to help people that you're working for a good cause and then the charity doesn't actually do anything with it or appreciate it yeah so i think i mean that's a lesson to learn but i'm not really sure how i can mitigate against that in the future yeah i mean yeah what would be the lesson then from that for other people to take away from that maybe if you if you're doing something for charity have an upfront discussion on how that is going to be used you know maybe even a contract with that person saying yeah. like hey i will do x if you promise that you know when i deliver you will you know do this or whatever right so i don't know yeah i think it comes down to again like the client knowing that the client is enthusiastic about the project uh the yeah. entire time that i was working with this charity it almost seemed like I was doing them a favor mm -hmm. or like, no, they were doing me a favor. It seemed like they were doing me a favor by deeming to let me make a video for them. Yeah. And they were just not communicative on emails. They were not communicative on responses. They would take forever. Everything I sent them, they were like, yeah, it's cool. And it's those kinds of clients that you just know they're not, they don't <laughs> care about the project. Yeah. Uh, let's announce something here that may, this may be the first place this is being talked about. You are talking with Moment to do a course. Is that right? That's right. So people who don't know, Moment is a company that's most known for their lenses, for their iPhone lenses, but they also have a marketplace on their website and they are also getting into the making filmmaking courses. They're kind of like masterclass, yeah. but that actually teaches you something. So, uh, <laughs> was that the, a burn? <laughs> <laughs> that was a burn on Masterclass. I've never yeah. subscribed to Masterclass. Is it not? Uh, From people who, what, what people have told me about it is that it's mostly inspirational instead of educational. Yeah, that makes but, sense. Just a bunch of celebrities talking about things, and it's just like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's not like hard skills, which, you know, is useful for a lot of people. Um, sure. There's definitely a market for that. But for a moment, it's literally like the nitty gritty of of what the skills are. So I'm making a course for a moment on how to make interviews. That's everything from how do you talk to, how do you prepare an interviewee, whether they're media trained or not, how to uh, ask questions, what questions should you ask, what order should you ask them in, how to make people comfortable, to literally how to light interviews, whether it's one person or hosted, uh, how to shoot them, what to consider for your cameras, for your lenses, how to do audio, and how to edit them. It's like a pretty much a, a film school in a bag. I don't yeah. know, it's a film school in one course. And it is something that I thought was incredibly important to teach because they do not teach this in film school. Mm. In film school, they assume that what you will be doing is narrative work, that what you will be doing is films and TV shows. They don't think about 
they don't think about the corporate videos. They don't think about the documentaries. They don't think about the YouTube videos or the myriad of other possibilities that you would need to conduct interviews for. And it really is an art. And it really is um, all about how do you get to the truth Mm -hmm. of what you're trying to accomplish with your interview. And that's, that's a lot of what I talk about in yeah. the, uh, in the course as well. And in my personal experience is a lot about working with what you got. You might show up to somebody's house that you're interviewing and the lighting is, you know, just a mess and there's a bunch of little knickknacks and junk all over the place. And you can use that to your advantage, use props that you find in their home as some sort of interesting thing, you know? So I'm, I'm really excited to see your, training and uh everybody be on the lookout uh for that to come out soon so that's cool man yeah i love it i'm really excited about it it's something that i've been wanting to do for a while and i'm glad i get to do with moment so uh at the end here i would love to give you an opportunity to leave some inspiration for those women that are listening to this for everybody who's listening um what are some things that you would just like to inspire our audience with uh some hard uh, things too, not just inspirational, right? Um, but no, seriously, like well, he, I want to give you an opportunity to to inspire. I think that a lot of women do get pushed to the side when it comes to um, being chosen for jobs, and it's not it's not an overt thing. It's just how people have been conditioned to think about women, and I would just say something that kind of changed my entire outlook about myself is I started seeing me being a woman as an advantage rather than as a disadvantage. So I started, listen, you have the woman card, you can play the woman card and that's totally okay. It's totally okay to be like, um, Hey, you know, you don't have a woman on your panel. I'm a woman. I should be on your panel. Hey, uh, I looked at your list of of directors on your website that you represent, and they are all men. You should represent a female director. Here's my reel. And the more that you put yourself out there, um, the the better. Like ever since I started putting my face out there instead of just my work, mm. people have started recognizing my worth more. So I don't know if that's a hard skill or whatever, but <laughs> I would say definitely you know use play the woman card because that's what you have to work with so definitely play it and no one's gonna hire you if they don't know about you if they don't know you exist people won't hire you and i get asked so many times like hey do you know do you know a, a gaffer of color do you know someone who um is trans who would want to you know shoot this movie about a trans experience do you know someone who um you know, as a black female filmmaker who can also edit, like, there's so many of these things that people are looking for. There's someone out there looking for you. So you just have to, like, make sure that they find you. Absolutely. And I think generally people are wanting to do the right thing. And uh, that's a very inspirational thing to, to leave our audience with. So thank you. And thank you for being on this show again for the second time <laughs> this... for the second first time yes. <laughs> yes in fact this was way better than the first time so i'm kind of glad we did it anyways because there's no internet issues there's no audio issues knock on wood um this this went really well so thanks again for being on well i'm happy that you had me on thanks for having me on thanks for asking me to do this um and i'm sure 
we'll work together oh, at some point of soon. I'll probably see you in a week. Oh <laughs> uh, no, you'll see me tomorrow. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the office uh, with Aperture right now, so I'm sure I'll see you around. Yeah, there's a big there's a big holiday sale happening tomorrow yeah. that I'm co-hosting. Awesome. So. When you're listening to this, it already happened, so you can go watch that on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Valentina. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Valentina. I'd like to thank Valentina again for being on the podcast and for doing this again, even though we had technical difficulties the first time. I hope you guys maybe learned something from her, some of the lighting techniques that she shared, some really good gold there. I can't wait to see her moment course and to uh, follow her career as she continues to create stuff for herself, for clients, as well as teach others on social media. If you enjoy this show, please consider subscribing if you haven't already, as well as leave a rating and review in the iTunes player. It really helps the algorithm and all the fun stuff with podcasting. So go leave a review and a rating if you're a fan of the show and if you haven't already. If you have already, thank you so much for leaving those reviews and for following the Golden Hour Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. We'll see you next week.